Hi everyone, uh, my name is Jacob. I'm the uh, host of Doors Within Us uh, podcast, and I'm really excited to be here with Ying Ru Chen. And uh, we're actually in, in her gallery, uh, at gallery, and she has been nice enough to have us here. So, um, so yeah, we, we had uh, Ying with us in the podcast, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. So, just backstory: I was just no, I live in Brookline, Massachusetts, and uh, I was trying to take a break from work. And I was just walking down the street at, on Harvard Street, uh, which is uh, in College Corner, uh, not far away from my home, uh, about five minutes or ten minutes away, five to, seven, five to seven minutes. And I was just walking down Harvard Street, and I, I came across the Praise Shadows Art Gallery. And um, fortunately for me, I met the, the founder. I was sitting just right inside, and we had a very good conversation. And today we're here. Sure. Thank you so much, Jacob. Uh, Ingru Chen, I go by Ing. Um, I am a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm Taiwanese. I'm American. I'm a Bostonian. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a lot of different things. Um, and right now, I exist as a gallery owner, someone who works deeply with artists, as I have my whole career. But this is the first time um, that I've entered into this physical space on my own as a, an entrepreneur and as an owner. Um, so in 2018, I started Praise Shadows as an art consultancy. I was still living in New York, and I um, did not understand or could even fathom back then having a physical mm -hmm. space because New York City is so, so, so expensive. Um, and then in 2019, late 2019, I moved back to Brookline where I grew up mm -hmm. after moving here from Taiwan. And I um, came back to Boston to raise my family and to kind of have a little bit of a calmer life after 20 years in New York. and. Then the pandemic hit, and about six months later, I came upon this real estate opportunity to take a lease um, in the neighborhood I grew up in, in the neighborhood where my children go to school, and I decided to open an art gallery. So I know we will talk more about that, but that's really the crux of um, what I do and who I am right now. Can you just talk a little bit about um it, like, um, so you grew up here in Brooklyn, right? I, grew up, I came here um, when I was five years old. Five years old. Yeah. So just give us uh, how, like, you know, from Taiwan to Brooklyn and New York, it sounds like it was a crazy place. <laughs> you had to come back to Brooklyn. Can you just give us, like, you know, first of all, how Taiwan was mm -hmm. growing up? I know f to five years old is pretty young. I mean, I was born in Taiwan at a point where the country was still um, very much evolving into a full democracy. And so my mother and father are you know, really the first in their families to have college educations. Um, Taiwan, for those who don't know, is you know, a, a little island that really punches above its weight class, right? It has a, a very strong economy, it has a very strong democracy, um, and yet it is you know, in this kind of tenuous position geopolitically. Um, my parents were, um, my father was a dentist, my mother was a pharmacist, they both just retired, but when they decided to come to the United States, it was because my father wanted to get a graduate, like a postdoc. Um, being a dentist, 
Yeah, so he was like so specialized, became periodontist, and he came here to take you know coursework for one year or to get a degree for one year. Um, and so we were only supposed to be here temporarily. And uh, then after about a year, they decided they, they wanted to stay, that they really enjoyed it. And this is why I don't have an Americanized name. You know, they never bothered <laughs> because we were supposed to go back. And um, by the time, you know, we had stayed a few years, I remember my father said, do you want to change your name now? And I thought, well, that's weird to go to school tomorrow and say, call me, you know, Annie or... I think he wanted to call me Grace, and I said, no, I uh, <laughs> can't be called Grace. Um, so, you know, my identity has always been in kind of in these two places, Taiwan and Boston. And then uh, the first year we lived in Brighton, Alston, and then um, they moved to Brookline because of the ESL program. Mm. So, you know, I didn't speak English, and um, the, the Brookline public school systems had and have um, English as a second language, so that's why they decided to live here. And I ended up graduating from Brookline High School, the public high school here. And I, you know, I really loved growing up here. I still um, see my teachers here all the time. And a lot of my friends have moved back as well. It was a really nice place to grow up. Um, and you know, I felt a lot of openness, intellectual openness for different cultures. It's a very international community as you know, you are an international um, Bostonian, and we just happened to come across each other, right? So I really did feel that Boston and Brookline specifically, when I wanted to leave New York, um, although it didn't occur to me for a few years, I realized that I had been searching for a place like Brookline for a long time to raise my children um, and to give them a good public school education. And I looked all over the country, and I landed back to where I was. Um, so it's been very surprising, very interesting, because when I moved here, there wasn't this sense of like, well, New York is the epicenter of the art world, you know, and my husband's a journalist. So like we were both in these industries where New York was so vital. Um, but then everything changes, you know, your life changes. And um, he had been working for a major news organization and I had been working you know for a company I really loved um, and before that I worked for museums and auction houses and in by 2018 we were both doing our own thing we were both freelancing and that was the year that we realized we didn't have to pay to live in New York anymore to do our jobs that we could do our jobs anywhere um, and that was the impetus to move back to Brookline. Your mom is a pharmacist, right? And your dad's a doctor. Mm -hmm. How did you end up being a... Yeah, <laughs> really good question. I think I always knew that I was not going to go into medicine, to practice medicine. Um, I wasn't interested in it. I wasn't that good at science. Like, I did fine. I, my grades were fine, but I was never passionate about it. I was much better in, you know, writing, and I loved history. Um, we didn't have art history classes growing up in the Brookline schools, but I took an art history class my sophomore year of college. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to this university or this college called Williams College, which oh, yeah. is in the Western Massachusetts. And um, when I went there, I thought I would become a psychology major. And so my whole first year, I took you know, coursework that um, focused on that. But I soon started hearing everyone's talk about art history and I didn't know what that meant 
but um, I did know that everybody took an art history class, art history 101. Even if you were a football player, a hockey player, like a jock, you still took art history. And so my sophomore year, I took art history 101 and I, yeah, I was hooked. I mean, I really learned so much about history in the world. I learned about Christianity through art history, to be honest, because I didn't, I, I grew up Buddhist. I didn't understand or know much about the iconography or the history. And through, you know, European art history, right, you, I, I learned a lot about um, different religions and cultures, and it just opened up a way of communicating mm -hmm. the world to me, but through visual art. And when you, when you decided to do this, were they, were they supportive of it? My parents? Yeah. I think they were supportive, but they didn't understand it either. Mm -hmm. And they, um, you know, I think the only other thing that was acceptable for a long time was, to be a lawyer, yes. <laughs> so I I did plan to go to law school. I you know was studying for the LSAT and everything, um, and so actually, and I'm still very interested in this area of study, which is intellectual, cultural property, um, cultural repatriation. You know, a lot of issues dealing with art and restitution. So for when I was in college, the restitution of like Nazi era art was a very um, big growing field and then I worked at a time at Sotheby's in Chinese works of art where you have to deal with um, cultural property issues, UNESCO, all of these um, very kind of deep, uh, yeah, legal but also just, it's, it's not, what I realized after a while um, by talking to a lot of art lawyers and I put that in quotes because what they all told me really was there isn't, you don't go to law school and study art law. You go to law school and you have to look at tax law or you might look at, you know, uh, intellectual property or intel um, copyright, all those. It, you have to do all of these things before you really specialize. And, um, and so instead of going to law school, I decided to go get a graduate degree in arts administration at Columbia, which allowed me to take the art classes at the law school. So the law school actually had classes on this issue, but it was like such a, it was an elective, you know, it was like a fun class for them, for the law students. Um, and then I got to take classes at the, uh, the architecture school, which had like an architectural preservation program. So I kind of developed my own curriculum yeah. through that. I, I bring this up because um, we have, I mean, just previous, um, some of the entrepreneurs that we have, uh, We've talked on the podcast, um, especially those from, you know, Africa, mm -hmm. or, um, Asia as well. It's, you know, there is, you know, being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer is like the gold standard. Yeah. And trying to build your own career out of what you really like to do mm -hmm. and set the foundation has mm -hmm. been, has been a common story. Yeah. And I think that is for you to do this and actually build mm -hmm. uh, where we are. Uh, for your reality to be something that we're sitting in right now, it's, uh, yeah. I think we inspire a lot of people. Thank you. It's also a privilege too, right? Like my parents could not do this because when they were in school in Taiwan, um, you test and based on what you test, you get placed in a certain type of curriculum and that curriculum becomes your career. So, and there was no way for them to even think about doing art or anything that wasn't going to help you know, them financially because their parents were never going to help them financially because they couldn't. Um, and, you know, in some ways, because again, my parents were the first of their families to 
go to college, you know, they felt immense burden in being able to provide, you know, for a family that they want to have. Um, so for me to be able to do this, yes, I mean, it's, it is inspiring, but it's also because, you know, the parents that I have before me, though they didn't really understand it, um, they made it safe yeah. for me to be able to do this. I mean, there's always something to at least fall back to, right? Mm -hmm. Like that supportive yeah. environment. Um, I think, so now going back to, so by the way, Taiwan, I love Taiwan. Yeah. I've been there. Um, great food. Great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we can talk about that later. <laughs> we um, have a podcast about Taiwan. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, but so you left Taiwan when you were five years old, then um, you went back again, right, when you were... I never went back to live, but I just, you know, I would go back to visit, yeah. Did, did, uh, did Taiwan in any way inspire you in um, mm. just like conceiving this idea or did you meet someone there that really um, gave you a sense of, did, did you somehow contribute to this? I, th I think probably, you know, I think the, not, not anyone specifically, but I think that Taiwan, again, as this, um, place in the world that has great like cultural influence and great poli uh, not political but great financial influence but has um always had to fight to be recognized yeah. right and so i come from people that like are never going to be complacent and we're never going to feel like you know this is um this is we're set for you know the rest of our lives. Um, also, Taiwanese people are really, really fun, and um, there's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of um, you know like persevering as well. Um, there's there, there's immense pos positivity, I think, in Taiwanese culture, and you and I have talked about this, you know, compared to perhaps some other places in Asia. Um, I, the vibe, the vibe is, is like a really special thing in Taiwan and, um, you know, and there's just like, uh, yeah, I think it's the, the joy. I, I really do feel that way. Um, but we also are, you know, a, a tiny little island that, um, is trying to just keep itself protected, keep itself, you know, for many people, we want sovereignty. We want to be, um, known that you know it's it's a fierce democracy and um that should not be taken lightly and i probably go into like every day of my life kind of feeling a little <laughs> bit the same way like i'm a very tiny person and you know i often feel um a little bit underestimated because of who i am like in this world and in this space in america so um i i know that there is a correlation. I mean, everything you said is it's really inspiring. I think it speaks to how, just based on like where we come from, there is some um, carryover um, in the way we think subconsciously, yes. right? And that affects the output that we put in the, the output of our work and our lives. Um, I think one thing that stood out in Taiwan was just the buildings. It was very uh, just well designed. Mm -hmm. They had like a unique architecture, and I, I felt like this like this art like. Mm -hmm inbuilt in people's yeah. m uh, minds uh, from yeah. that standpoint. But beyond that, uh, as you, just to echo what you said, like the people are just so fun. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's so fun. Yeah. I, I guarantee you that was like one of the, 
the place I felt like welcome. So cool. Yeah, I love it. Great yeah. Like the food, man. The food. The food. <laughs> the food what was your favorite dish? What do you remember? No, I'm not put on the spot. Are you like a, do you like seafood? Yeah, the, yeah actually, I had like several, um, I had, I went to several restaurants where like yeah. I had, yeah, a, a taste of like, do I had like this uh, pho that had like all this different oh, yeah. seafood stuff in yeah. it. Uh, yeah. uh, it was just so good. You, when my mother comes back from Taiwan, um, all she does is cook. Yes. <laughs> And she's famous. She's famous. Like yeah. we actually just had her 70th birthday um, celebration in Taiwan. So my cousin made a video, mm. and there was a whole section of her and her basically banquets. You mm. know, she'll just cook, and there might be like six of us, and then there's like 12 dishes. <laughs> you know? But it, it is it is also what gives her joy. And the, you know, another thing that's interesting about Taiwan is. Um, there's a lot of different cultural influences, obviously, right? So for a long time, it was, for 50 years, it was a Japanese colony. So I don't know if you had Japanese food there, but it's very, very good there, too. Um, and then, you know, obviously the Chinese, uh, the mainland Chinese influence. And there's just, you know, there's, there's something really special, like a, a combination or a, yeah. uh, a synthesis of different synthesis, cultures. Yeah. 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 No, I, I felt that, um, I, I kind of felt that, um, yeah, that's just a really, really nice place. And I'm happy that, you know, you're kind of bringing that in here yeah. in this space, yes, and which is truly, truly, truly commendable. Um, I want to go back mm -hmm. for you as well as, as, well as your, your kids. Uh, mm -hmm. And perhaps one of my future in here in the episode. Um, but can you just give us a sense of how that support network, your close family mm -hmm. uh, kind of help you set this up? Uh, from 2018, I guess. Yes, well, so 2018 was when um, I started Pray Shadows as a company. And again, it was just a consultancy then. I was, um, you know, working with artists and, and working with a few companies. But I started the gallery in December 2019. No, December 2020, sorry. And I moved to, I moved to Boston. So I moved to Boston in September 2019. And then the pandemic hit March 2020. And then June 2020, I um, met the landlord about the space because that's when the space was available for lease. And then I opened the gallery in December 2020. Yes, 2020. So, um, you know, it's just been a kind of every like few blocks of months, I, I find myself just kind of being like, oh, I'm going to make this big change. Yeah. And um, and this happened before the pandemic. Um, I, I think that deciding to come back to Boston and being, you know, my parents at that time were living here fully before they retired. So that was a big um, kind of advantage in a way because I knew that if I needed to go to New York, which I was doing every month for work, um, you know, if, obviously my husband was here, he, he was taking care of the kids, but if he also had to travel or was very busy, my mother and father at that time could also help. Um, but, you know, we both have lives, I'm talking Devin, my husband and I, we both have lives where we value um, creativity, yeah. right? He, um, he's a writer and he uh, is constant, I mean, he, all he does is think about stories and ideas and, um, you know, what, what is happening in the world that he might want to um, also kind of process and 
you know, put together in his point of view. He's not a newspaper writer, he's like, he's a magazine writer. Okay. So he is really working on these long form, long lead stories and trying to find um, the most interesting way to tell it. And he's extremely wickedly funny. So that's another way, you know, I really appreciate, like you can get excellent journalism, but do it with humor and you can do it, um, you know, you can write a, he just wrote a big celebrity profile that isn't something he does all the time, but it pretty much went viral because it was like, the biggest story, it was this Vanity Fair cover about Grimes, the, oh, the singer. Yeah, Grimes, yeah, yeah. yeah, so my husband Devin wrote that story and um, you know, as he was reporting it, all of these really insane things kept happening. Like he discovered she had a secret baby upstairs. Uh, <laughs> and you know, so there were, and, and like I would hear it as well and I'm here at the gallery and I'm telling my staff, you know, and we're, so we, we just love like this back and forth of kind of all of the things that are going on in our lives. Um, and then every once in a while I need Devin to sit here <laughs> and be at the front desk because I can't be here or we're all busy. I mean, he doesn't do it that often anymore. I think on his like Instagram or Twitter profile, he says like, you know, journalist and art handler at Prey Shadows <laughs> Art Gallery. Um, and yesterday we went to a really beautiful opening for uh, something called the New England Triennial, which is an exhibition um, happening at the De Cordova Museum and at Fruitlands Museum. And Devin was wearing a, a Prey Shadows hat, which we have. You know, and people spotted him and, and said, and wanted to talk to him because I knew about the gallery. So that's really nice too. It was like, we're, you know, we're both constantly just yeah. hyping each other up. Yeah. I think it's so important, like this, especially small things like him sitting here yeah. and helping out. It goes so The long. first time I ever met him was um, I read one of his articles for a magazine, and I had not met him in person yet, and I just laughed reading the whole thing, mm -hmm. and then I happened to meet him at a bar. Yeah, that's how we met. <laughs> but I was like, I read your article, it was really funny. I have to digress here. So you just went to a bar, random bar. <laughs> And you, and you. I mean, no. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, this was like 20 years ago, and um, but so way before social media. No, I we we had a mutual friend, oh, yes. but I had Some I was doing PR for a museum, oh. so I knew you know I had to read these things, and um, yeah, I just I love writing. I don't. I'm a good writer, but I think when someone it's just like an artist. You know, you can be really good at drawing, can be really good at painting or sculpture, but when you like take it. In, yeah, there's something about what you've done that nobody else can do, right? It is like inherently what you have put out there into the world. I feel like that's what someone like Devin is, is really good at for his stories. Shout out, shout out to you. Shout out to Devin. Um, but also he's a great, you know, he's a very ethical, um, good journalist. So there are things that I, uh, I respect a lot about the way, you know, he does his work because he doesn't compromise on especially doing things like celebrity profiles you know there's um, a lot that goes on between like I won't even get into it but there's a lot and then it's just like here you know I try and do my business as ethically as possible because I want to do this for a long time I want my artists to be around for a long time and you know my I truly believe if you try and cut corners and if you try and you know do things um, unethically, then it will come back sure. to you. For sure. I mean, I think, but I think overwhelmingly, um, just the, f 
just what I see on the Facebook page um, and online as well. It's just, I think overwhelmingly, people are very like receptive about just what you're, you're doing. I think it's just, you know, this gallery is kind of, and this business is something that has been building up in me for a long time. And I think that's what happens with um, some people, not all entrepreneurs, because some people are serial entrepreneurs, so they're just trying to get the next thing going. I mean, for me, this is all of the things that I have done in my career, right, which is, um, you know, I was a PR marketing director for mm -hmm. museums, so I know how to promote artists and promote shows. And I have done, um, you know, different types of revenue stream projects with artists. I have done, you know, so many, I've been an art specialist at an auction house, right? I've done so many different things that never was about climbing that corporate ladder so that I could be, you know, the executive vice president or partner. I mean, honestly, I could not care less about that. And I, I did leave jobs even though, you know, the companies would offer a promotion. Um, I just knew if it's not the right fit for me right now or if I've outgrown it, then I shouldn't stay. So when I started the company, there were so many things that were just like, here are the three main things that I care about. And you can see this actually in my presentation deck. Um, you know, first was obviously the exhibition program. The second was uh, we have an art shop. So we have items that you know, we either help create or we carry and lots of art books. Yeah, it's, too, yeah, it's also on the website. And we're expanding our space to accommodate. Oh, if, yeah, so we will have like an actual physical space. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of sharing it, it'll be in a few months. That's so yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, all of that was, uh, the art shop was really important to me because we're in a neighborhood where we have great uh, local stores. And as a kid growing up here, I would go into these stores if I had you know, a few extra dollars or I had to buy a friend a birthday present, I would go into these places. And now that you know, my 12-year-old does exactly the same thing. And I also know that this is a neighborhood full of really you know, intellectually curious, intelligent people, but they may not have had the experience much of going into a contemporary art gallery. And so this space functions as like a hybrid space where we have art books and we have items that you know are made by our artists who are in the MFA Boston collection, but you can buy her work. Specifically, I'm thinking right now of an artist named Madeline Donahue, um, the very first artist I got into the Museum of Fine Arts Boston collection, and she's making beautiful uh, limited edition um, wood flowers, painted flowers for Mother's Day. You know, her work focus on, focuses on motherhood. So just things like that where we can make artwork a little bit more accessible to people who may not have a lot of money to spend on art but are interested in, you know, being a part of the process. Um, even if you come and buy, we have, you know, these cute erasers from the Gorilla Girls, which is this, the most famous feminist art collective. And they have this great, you know, kind of pink standard eraser, but it says erase the patriarchy or eliminate the patriarchy, right? So like, that's, you know, that's a few bucks. It's less than $5. Um, and we have, you know, teenagers coming in here and buying those little things. And, um, and, and A, it supports the artists, the Gorilla Girls. Like, I'm 
I'm offering, you know, or I'm buying from the Gorilla Girls. And then um, B, every time you come out of here and you buy something, even if it's a few dollars, I'm like, hey, you're a future art collector, or you know, you just work, you just collected art. Great. See, no big deal. Um, and I really think like it really should be no big deal, right? You don't have to buy something expensively, but if you find that drawing somewhere for you know two hundred dollars, and the artist is is selling it out of their studio. Don't be intimidated. If you love it, then you should feel like buying it helps that artist continue to do something else or co to continue their practice. That is, that's so exciting. I think um, that, that's incredibly awesome. Oh, but wait, wait. That's, so that's the second part of the gallery um, mandate. Yes. And then the third is our mentorship program. So again, remember I told you my first internship was unpaid and you know I almost left the art world because of it. Um, so I, from the very beginning, I started this mentorship program where we hire two high school uh, mentees from local Boston public schools or Boston schools. And then um, they work here from about March through the end of the summer. And while they work here, they learn about you know the ins and outs of working at a gallery, how to talk to people, how to work with artists. But then they also have mentorship sessions with a professional curator from Boston. And so last year was our first year, obviously. We had just opened. Um, and we had a, a high school mentee from Brookline High School and a mentee from Watertown High School. And then our mentor was Leah Triplett-Harrington, who is a curator in Boston for the public art organization Now and There. And uh, Leah took them on site visits. She took them to studio visits with artists. And then they, uh, this, the two students curated a, an exhibition, a group exhibition. And um, it did in incredibly well. You know, mm -hmm. we sold uh, multiple artworks from that show. And, but more importantly, the mentees developed their voice as curators. And um, one thing I told them was, I want to see what a show looks like from the point of view of two 18, 17, 18 year olds. You know, what excites you right now about art? Who are the artists that, that excite you? And one of the things that was really funny is that I like didn't really understand some of the artworks at first when I just saw pictures of them online. And then as we were installing it, I fell in love with all of the art. And I was so happy that they introduced me <laughs> to artists. So, you know, so anyway, we now have um, a new men we have a new mentor. Her name is Jen Mergel. She is a Boston born and raised, you know, one of the most amazing curators um, I've encountered. And uh, we have a high school mentee from Brookline again this year and one from Newton. And, um, you know, it's just always fun to see what they come up with and, you know, what kind of art and what kind of show they want to put together because I don't want my perspective to be the only thing that, you know, comes out here. I mean, I will help them edit the show. They still need a little bit of input, but um, it's, it's really exciting. And then during the opening, you know, it's full of young people. It's all their friends and it's awesome, you know. There's so many dimensions that you're, you're, you're approaching that. I think one thing about your story is that once you face something that you thought this is something that has to be improved or mm -hmm. there is a way for us to, um, for you to make a difference in that you actually implement it in, into yeah. Crazy Shadows. But I, I, one thing about art, and I'm talking from an outsider, is like 
we always feel that one is just incredibly inaccessible. It's difficult to assess, rather. Mm -hmm. um, it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be an artist to appreciate the work. Mm -hmm. So I think you have like, you know, uh, created a space where all those barriers um, okay. are really... Yeah. And, and beyond that, young people bringing them into this mentorship program is, is really invaluable. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah. Uh, for the next generation. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the one of the mentees from last year is um, deciding which college she'll go to, and you know, I'm really proud of her because she has been able to put this show on her resume, mm -hmm. and or I guess her resume on her application, and you know, it's not because of this, but you know, it she's she's getting to pick between several excellent schools that are giving her you know great like financial aid packages and i just i just know like she can go into this next step of her life with a lot of confidence Definitely. you know because she will can have said well i've already worked with all these artists i've already worked with these curators and i've already worked with this gallery system so Definitely. now you know she, i think she's going to go to school in new york city mm -hmm. she's going <laughs> to enter this like big time and it you know it'll just cut a lot of the friction i think for mm -hmm. someone who's 18 um, and figuring out what they want to do yeah just one life making that decision it's powerful yeah. Are your kids uh, your mentees as well? The twelve-year-old. Can I tell you my nine-year-old? <laughs> but they, you know, they're funny. I, I often wonder. My husband and I talk about this a lot because I'm like, wow, I did not grow up surrounded by artists, surrounded by writers, surrounded by this kind of conversation. I grew up surrounded by wonderful people, right? But it wasn't like this at all. Um, so I'm curious to know what they end up looking to do or wanting to do. Um, my daughter, I actually took her this weekend to New Haven because Yale, you know, the Yale um, University MFA program had their open studios and there's this great nonprofit called Next Haven. They had their open studios too. And she loved it. Mm -hmm. I mean, she really absorbed all of it and I could totally see her, you know, in one of those studios in college or in grad school. Um, my son wants to be an engineer, so. <laughs> However, all I see him do is build, 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 right? So he like is useless with, pen with his pencil. He can't write very well. He's not very good with that, but he will take things apart and put it back together. So I see both of them and I see engineering as being extremely creative, right? Like if you, if you are able to excel in that field, but then think creatively about it, I really feel like, you know, people like that can take over the world. Definitely, definitely. Definitely. And so the, the one is 12, the other yeah. one's nine. nine. Oh, that's, that's an interesting age. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're really different people too, but they've just been, you know, they've been around art their whole lives. Um, but I don't, I don't even give my daughter art lessons. Like she's very, she's very good at drawing and I've never done that because I don't know. I, she, now, she now really loves writing. I just feel like they will find their own way and eventually like, it'll all be processed into something that they package together. Yeah. Yes. I, do, and when I think of, and I will go into just the partners mm -hmm. and we'll just talk a little bit about this because I think it's, it's such an honor and just for you to be so nice for us to be in here. Um, yeah, of course. And it's, I would just love to get a little bit about mm -hmm. just how you thought about the colors and just like the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, design, the design itself. So this space um, that we're in was originally, when I took it over, it was formerly the GNC vitamin GNC. shop. Okay. 
and um, you know, which was here for maybe four or five years, and before that was a dry cleaner. Mm -hmm. When it was a GNC, I never stepped foot in here. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone did, unless you needed protein powder or something yeah. like that. Um, so it had like drop ceilings, really um, different tile floors, wall-to-wall -wall shelving, and I just knew, I was like, just knock it all out, mm -hmm. knock it all out. I was really fortunate because my childhood friend, um, Sam Batchelor is an architect, and I just, you know, asked him to help me. And this is the thick of the pandemic, and he did. He helped me um, kind of come up with, you know, just the the vision, which honestly is very simple. It's, um, you know, we exposed the ceiling, um, but Sam was also the architect for the Mass Art Art Museum, which had just opened before the pandemic. So um, he had experience working and building a gallery, and that was really helpful. Um, I remember he told me, because the ceiling used to be like the, the color of the natural dark wood, mm -hmm. and he said, you know, that Mass Art Museum ceiling, we painted white, and it looks really nice. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> this is like directly related to that. Um, and then he connected me with his friend uh, Shane Gibbons, who's a con general contractor, and Shane is amazing. I really, I, I feel like I just lucked out. Like nobody, nobody loves their general contractor, and <laughs> nobody loves their landlord, and I do. I love both of them. Um, so, you know, we just had, I, I had very specific ideas about like, I wanted the floor to look like this, to have this kind of cement finish. Um, but we, we did it, it was a process. And, um, you know, I also knew I needed the space to be very uh, flexible in terms of its layout. So these walls that you see here, I have two of them. Um, They're on casters, so they can wheel anywhere around the space. And then my contractor, Shane, also built them to be art storage. So inside is a, another way for me to, you know, save on space, although I have a full basement. Um, but all of those things, you know, again, we were in COVID time, so it was like, I have no idea how people are going to relate to space, how people are going to want to enter space as we do this. So let's keep it as nimble as, as possible. And, and it's, and it's just, it's so, so, so incredible. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, you know, and then we also have these big windows right onto the street. So I knew I wanted something that people would, um, would be able to have like a really clean sight line into, right? Nothing like, nothing too distracting, just the art needs to speak for itself. Yes, uh, it's, yeah. it's mind blowing. <laughs> um, so uh, you mentioned the, Price. Uh, so there's, we have the Price Shadows uh, Art Partners, right? Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that and how yeah. that how that works? Yeah, I mean, the Art Partners really is like the original, the OG of it all. So, um, but I, I I feel like just because I have a gallery doesn't mean I can't continue to help the artists with you know commissions and projects. So like even just today, I was on a deadline for a public art. Um, public art commission that one of our artists had been asked to submit for. So, you know, but that artist is extremely busy, so I'm their partner in it. Like, I'm helping them with all of the ins and outs, the logistics, um, getting that material ready. And then, you know, and then I have another deadline for, you know, an, another commission. So mm -hmm. those sorts of things, like the art world is, you know, based in the gallery system, but it's also about getting artists exhibitions, it's about getting artists, um, shows or public art commissions that that sort of opportunity is something that like I don't want them to miss out on 
and oftentimes they are so busy because they, you know, luckily are doing quite well. So I want to be able to support them if we can. Um, and it's also to help them think like, have you thought about this opportunity? You know, have you thought about your work translating in this way? Um, and that's why I think in our boilerplate, in our bio, we say, you know, we do things that we haven't even imagined yet. And that's, I think, what I feel compelled to completely um, immerse ourselves with in terms of like what's happening in the world, you know, what are people excited about? Um, you know, we can talk like NFTs, everyone's excited about NFTs now. Well, you know, my, when I, one of my first clients in 2018 uh, is a company called snark.art and I was their chief marketing officer and snark was working in the blockchain and art space in 2018. So I became very familiar and very um, entrenched in that world way before NFTs became popular again in 2020. And so, you know, I feel like I am ready. I'm, I take risks if it feels right. I don't jump into things. I'm actually not even really in the NFT digital art space. Um, you know, if, if an artist wants to do something on it, we talk about it and we try and figure it out. I'm not like, that is not my bread and butter. That is not something I even, I, I don't have any artists right now that do NFTs in that way. However, I do use blockchain for, like all of this art here is registered on the blockchain. And we do that for a very different reason. And that is to build in secondary sales royalties for the art. Um, so, you know, I, um, I've been working with this company called Fairchain and Fairchain was recently profiled in the New York Times. Um, they are based in New York, but again, like they work with blockchain, they work with the technology, but it's not about digital assets. It's about how do we use this really interesting technology, which is basically a ledger, you know, it's, it's great for accounting and yeah. things like that. But how do you use this technology in art? And one of the main advantages is being able to track um, that artwork through sales. And so currently, you know, for in the United States, if, if you, Jacob, bought a painting from me, um, just normally, normal transaction, you know, you give me X amount of dollars and I give you the painting. Um, and then in 20 years, you decide to sell the painting at an auction because you, you see that this artist is doing quite well. And that price at auction now has tripled. Um, well, you get to keep, you get to keep the money. The, the auction house takes a commission, but the artist gets zero. And so what we're trying to do, and what I've always been interested in with, um, with blockchain is the ability to build in those secondary sales royalties. So we've been doing it with Fairchain since um, March 2021. <laughs> I'm like, all, yes, March. So we've been doing it for, for uh, more than a year. And um, our, you know, one, our, our show that was uh, a solo show by an artist named Yuri Shimojo was five amazing paintings that had only ever been shown in Japan. And they premiered in the US here. Um, and they were just, you know, they're irreplaceable. They're works about uh, the nuclear disaster and earthquake that happened in Japan yeah. 10 years ago. And um, it was now 11 years ago, yeah. So, 
those paintings were acquired um, primarily by one collector, which was also something I worked really hard to make happen because I didn't want five paintings all over the place if, if I could. I wanted them with um, one collector so that we could continue to do museum loans of these works easily. So uh, it's actually one collector owns four and then this person's um, friend partner owns the fifth one. Um, and it's all registered on the blockchain, which means that you know, if, if the artists in 30 years or 20 years, um, if these works do end up being sold, the artist or her estate will at least get something from it. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that's something that, you know, as a new gallery, I was able to implement with uh, confidence because A, I knew, the, I knew everything about art and blockchain at that point, whereas a lot of people were still learning and they only knew about NFTs. And I think that's like a very specific, narrow way of understanding how blockchain and art can work together. Um, and then, you know, another, another thing is just like, Small galleries are often the ones that bring up artists and do you know, a lot of the legwork and then the artist might hit you know, it really big and, and then they would get poached by a bigger gallery. So one of the things that we also do on blockchain and all of our artists um, agree and participate in is out of their secondary sales royalty, they give a small fraction to the gallery as well. So you know, we, again, like it, we feel like we're part of this partnership. Um, and that is where I find that, you know, as we think about how we use new ideas or new technologies, I don't do it, I don't do it for everything. I, I really am very selective, but when I see something that I think could be pivotal and instrumental in how we move forward, you know, I will completely go ahead and adopt it. Uh, and from what I see, uh, I mean, based on what we've talked about from very early on, um, you, you you think a lot about just one like you have the experience like you already you feel like you can do it yeah. and also there is um, you really consider the other people you're working with especially the artists it's like at the front and center of your totally. project, which is uh, yeah. which is exciting um, um, it just really cool <laughs> amazing work. Um, so for the third piece of the interview, I just want to, um, this is like uh, the inspirational section, mm -hmm. but before that, I just want to ask, like, how do you, it sounds like you do a lot of stuff, right? There's this uh, aspect of it that you work with the artists to help them, um, you know, uh, increase other channels that they can make money, but also like highlight the work. Mm -hmm. You also manage this, you have a family. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you manage stress? You know, I'm like pretty even tempered, even keeled. Um, I am competitive. You know, I was actually, <laughs> I was, I was like a Division One athlete, and I, yeah, I mean, that was like a huge part of my college career. So I've always done extra. <laughs> extra. I was like, um, I was the captain of the crew team. I was the, co you know, I just did all of these things and I would, if I was given an opportunity and it made sense, I would do it. Um, so I think a lot of that is just ingrained in me. Like I, I still get sleep. I don't, I'm not like a four hour sleep person. I just try and simplify everything else, you know, if I can, uh, which means 
for example, moving here and having my children go to school one block away from the gallery, uh, living, you know, a five to seven minute walk home. Everything kind of exists in this little triangle. Um, and so, yes, that makes it extremely convenient because, you know, right now, like I, I haven't, my parents are not in the US right now, so we have no childcare. It's just us and the kids and it's great. It totally works. Um, you know, a lot of it is just, I'm, I'm lucky I have a 12 year old now, so she can help take care of a lot of things. But um, when we lived in New York, you know, it was definitely challenging because it's, it, you know, I, I worked either full-time or part-time, so I always had um, someone to help me with the kids, whether it was a babysitter or uh, when they were very little, we had an amazing nanny who was like a grandmother. But um, even then, I would rush home every day, you know, trying to make sure that the woman who helped me could go home as well. So there's just so many other people that you have to like take into account when you live a life like that. Whereas now it's just me and my people. Um, obviously I have employees too now, and so I you know, wanna take care of them, make sure that they go home okay, that they don't, you know, they're not overworked. And it's hard, like we're still a small team and we have so much going on. Um, but I do my best just to be transparent about like, you know, our schedules, what people are capable of doing. If somebody asks and says that they need to take a day off, you know, of course, like, I, I can't, I, I have to agree and I have to just figure it out and make it work. Um, but, and I also think like we're, I'm running an art gallery. I'm not like an ER doctor. So, you know, if I need to, we don't do it very often, but if I need to close the gallery, cause like we just can't be here, um, I will, you know, it's okay. If you can't see art today, like, just let me know, we'll <laughs> make it work another day. Um, but I think simplification is really important and, you know, trying not to take on too much beyond what you already um, have going on. I should definitely exercise more, you know, I should definitely, like, <laughs> I should definitely, I mean, you know, it's not like uncommon. So I wish I wished I had more space and time to do certain things. Um, but I feel so lucky that I have been able to like carve this out for myself. And it's not just like my family around me and, and like this immediate surrounding um, that's convenient. For example, the other day we had kind of like a, an emergency. We needed uh, help with a framing situation. Mm -hmm. And um, my neighbor across the street, Tom at Picture Place, who's a framer, came by, helped me. In 30 minutes it was done and back on the wall. You know, and the artist, Helena, was just like, wow, you have it, like, you're so lucky. Everything's around you. Um, and that's partly, yeah, I exist in a community that is really helpful. Yeah, it sounded like right timing. You had the right experience. Yeah. You took action at the right time, mm -hmm. and it just everything just aligned. One thing that I really like for you to highlight as as we uh, end this conversation is, um, what will be your what is what is something you'd like to share with the especially like you know uh, the minority community. You know we have um, not by default. I mean sometimes we grow up in families where taking risks is really hard, just based on the culture that we are exposed to. Um, and you alluded to earlier, 
even as supportive your parents were, they didn't really understand what you're building. Mm -hmm. And it took a while. Um, I mean, perhaps now we are here and you've built something really amazing. Um, if you want to just please share with you know, the people that are listening to this or even watching this, like, um, how can they approach this in a way that is healthy? When I mean healthy, it's like they don't get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. They don't come with the approach of like they're trying to prove something, but genuinely helping the people that they need to help. Yeah, that's such a good question. I think one of the things I did that I'm really happy I did um, was I established kind of a, a group of advisors. Mm. Um, and they weren't, you know, they weren't like compensated. I didn't really ask them, honestly, for a ton. It was just more like, again, this is in my, my, my business deck. Um, you know, here's my, my architect. Here's my, I even credited my landlord. Um, but you know, my, my legal counsel is my dear friend who is, talk about being an art lawyer. She has now achieved like art lawyer status. You know, I, I just, she is the best. Her name is Yayoi Shionori and she is someone who, um, you know, always has my ear if I need help. Always usually on behalf of my artist too. So I feel like they can go to me, they can say, Ing, I have this contract or I have this project but I need some legal advice, and then they know that I have the best person. And Yayoi was um, really instrumental in helping me set up my first contracts for all my artists and for my purchases. So, you know, for her, it was like pretty standard stuff, but for someone like me, it just meant so much to have her. Um, you know, I also just had a, another woman that I had worked with who did um, communications, um, who, you know, came in as my advisor in that way as well. So I think having people in your corner to um, maybe help supplement all of those parts of your toolkit that you don't quite have at your disposal. Like, you're probably really good at, like, XYZ things, and I'm going to be good at other things that you need to delegate to me or you need that advice from. Um, I think to find those people, but to find those people with like a really genuine, in a genuine way where it's not, it's really, I hate to say this, but like it was never transactional. It was never like, hey, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Yeah. It was just like they believed in it. And the next time they ask me because they need something and I believe in it, I will support them as well. Um, I think that's, I think community is, is key. key. And um, it's hard to exist on your own as an entrepreneur and not have anyone help you or anyone, you know, um, kind of lift you up on the way. The, the flip side is, you know, I also didn't really want people to tell me what to do. <laughs> so, and I think that's the tricky part about being an entrepreneur is like, if you have a vision, you should fulfill that vision. You should listen to people. But I, um, you know, I don't have partners in the business because I feel really confident in what this voice is. And so to put in, you know, at this point, like another voice or another point of view um, in terms of the business or the programming, I think that could probably be difficult. So um, you have to look, it's a, it's a nuanced way of adding people to your community without taking um, advice that like you may not want or need and then taking advice just you know when you really feel like it's critical to you building what you're trying to build exactly exactly that is that is so 
That is so great. <laughs> um, so the, the last, um, and by the way, it's behind the camera is Tiffany. I'll give a lot of credit to the work that mm -hmm. she's done, and um, just, just amazing. So yeah. thank you so much for being here. Um, but I think this question is like, so you built this incredible space, um, and I, I know it's gonna do really well. Um, just a God for me. And I know this is, um, I'm, I actually, I think I'm lucky that I'm at this beginning, so that 10 years from now, I'll be like, yes, I knew, <laughs> I knew you. And this record. And you knew all these artists. And yes. Artists. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And most importantly, I have the record to show it. I was one of the first people to, um, the, one of the, the, the privileged people to, to meet you. Um, what do you see as a legacy, um, the legacy story of this place? Mm and for yourself? That is such a loaded question. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think from my personal legacy, I just want to be remembered as someone who was kind and someone who, you know, it, uh, yeah, just kindness. That's, you know, or I tried, I tried hard and I, I you know, did my best. Um, I don't feel like I need to be famous. I don't feel like I need to do any of those things from like an egotistical point of view. Um, on the gallery, on the other hand, right, like that exists beyond me. If one day, and I don't plan on this, but if one day, you know, I, I want to pass it on to somebody, then that could happen. And that's why I didn't name it after myself. Um, that's something that I did very deliberately, not because, again, I was planning on selling it or anything. It's just like, you know, if it should have legs, then I want it to not just be about me. Um, but I do want the gallery to be known as a place that incubated really incredible art and exhibitions in Boston and beyond. Um, and I feel like I can say that confidently. You know, we've. I've talked about the museum acquisitions, but you know we have uh, we have acquisitions happening right now with you know a New York museum, and we placed a work um, in the California museum. So we are not just a Boston gallery anymore, and I feel really um, I feel really excited about that. And I, so there's like the flip side of you know I, I want to emphasize that we do exist here, that this community has been very important, but that we have wings that can take us you know, anywhere in the world um, because that's what our artists want. Our artists don't want to be shown in just one city. Um, so I really hope that you know, you'll see Helena in lots of different places and you'll see all of our artists in lots of different places. And, and that's because that's what is best for the artist and their careers. I really want to thank you so much thank for you, this. Thank you, um, this is so nice. This has been, uh, this has been so much fun. And um, I mean, I would just say it again, just like the legacy part that you mentioned and just from a personal point of view and also how you see um, the power of what you're building, um, it's truly profound and I can sense that it's very genuine too. No, I mean, it's been a pleasure. I'm so honored and um, this is the whole point. I wanted people to come from walking down the street and just come in and say, what is this? So to everyone listening, uh, uh, we have uh, Ying Ru Chen here. Pray Shadows Arts Gallery and Partners, and um, it's been such an honor. Thank you, guys. So, I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.